Tattoos have been around since prehistoric times, and body piercings go back hundreds of years. But now, they're in your waiting room and your ED. Do you know how to treat the complications? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining us today to discuss the complications of body piercing and tattoos is Dr. Rachel Chin, a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Dr. Chin is an attending physician at San Francisco General Hospital. She's the editor-in-chief of a newly released textbook, Emergency Management of Infectious Diseases. She is here to talk to us on problematic piercings and troublesome tattoos. Dr. Chin, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here. So to put this in perspective, what can you tell us about the history of tattoos? Well, it's nothing new. It's been practiced since the Neolithic times, but tattoos have just been more popular recently within the past 10 years, and it's really skyrocketed along with body modifications and body piercing. And people do it for religion, fashion, eroticism, conformism, or as a subcultural identification. And it really is on the rise compared to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, correct? Yes, we're seeing more and more patients with tattoos and body modifications. Is this regulated? Is this industry regulated at all? Somewhat. There's no national regulations, and there are some states let local, city, and county decide on their regulations. But if they have a certification from the associations of professional piercers or the alliance of professional tattooists, then it means that they have had some blood-borne pathogen universal precautions training as taught by the Red Cross. So when you go into a tattoo parlor and you probably don't know what you're, what you're buying or what you're getting, they may not even be able to guarantee for you that they're using universal precautions, correct? Because even beauty salons use some type of precautions. Right. And uh, most of the artists are unlicensed and have learned via informal apprenticeship unless they have been certified and they have been apprenticing for a very long time. And if they have a certification, then they practice universal precautions. So let's talk about some of the complications of tattoos. What's a common complication you might see in an office or an ED? What about an allergy to the dye? The most common allergic reaction is with the red and yellow dyes, and that can occur any time after inking. But the more serious complications would be any type of skin infections. And whenever you have a break in the skin, you're more prone to different types of infections. And there have been case reports of hepatitis B, C, HIV, pseudomonas, staph, MRSA, tetanus, and syphilis from tattoos. Now, getting back to the allergy, they come in, they seem, you see erythema. How do you treat it? Does the tattoo have to be removed? Can you reverse it? Uh, you would treat it as any soft tissue infection. The only thing we're worried more about now are MRSA because that is becoming more prevalent in the community. So you may want to try different antibiotics to see if there's a response, if no response to, of course, change your antibiotic to make sure you're covering for MRSA. So what's your, what's your first-line drug then? When you, should you treat them as though they have MRSA? In our community, we do because we see a fair number of MRSA, and we often start with clindamycin because it has good MRSA coverage, and it also covers group A strep. Do you like Bactrim, or you go right to Clinda? We tend to go right to Clinda. Bactrim doesn't cover group A strep as well as Clinda would. So suppose you have a patient who actually tells you in advance, Dr. Chin, I'm going to go out and get a tattoo. And aside from you want to say, just don't do it, there's a high risk. What can you advise the patient? What type of place should they go to? 
I wouldn't recommend them not doing it. I think it's become more accepted in the culture these days. And if they do get a tattoo, they should go to someone who is licensed and to know that they have a certification and have formal training in the anatomy and infection control or universal precautions. Now, is there something they can look for on the wall? What certification was that that you mentioned before? The certification would be the Association of Professional Piercers or the Alliance of Professional Tattooists. You mentioned about hepatitis. How real is the risk of hepatitis from a tattoo? Have you seen that? Is that something, is that one of the reasons why the Red Cross doesn't let you donate blood for a year after getting a tattoo in case you seroconvert? I don't know the exact numbers of seroconversion, but there's enough case reports that would make you cautious and wary about where you get your tattoos. You know, this is an election year, so nothing can be finished without commenting on that. And I understand you had some very interesting statistics on the number of tattoos in Democrats and Republicans. Can you share that with our audience? That's right. Since this is an election year, how can I resist not telling you that Democrats have the most tattoos at 18 percent and the Republicans at 14 percent and independents at 12 percent? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining me to discuss complications of tattoos and body piercings that you may have to treat is Dr. Rachel Chin from the University of California, San Francisco, and she has a lot of experience in this. Let's talk about body modifications. That's not new either, is it? No, it's not. It originated in Africa and New Guinea as part of tribal rituals, but the trend began in San Francisco about 10 years ago, and there are different types of scarifications. What's a scarification? Because I never heard of that, and I'm betting a lot of our listeners didn't either. That's when the person would create a design on their skin based on cutting out a design by scarring. So there are different ways of scarring. There's branding, such as using a pattern to burn the skin using an electrocautery knife, such as a bovie. Or there's also scarring by using a scalpel to remove the outer layer of the tissue. And the body creates the scar, not the artist. There's also chemical burns that can be done and using a tattoo gun without the ink. I confess, Rachel, I've never heard of this. Is it pretty common in San Francisco? I think it is more common in San Francisco than it would be in other states or cities. San Francisco is a bit unique. Now, I'm also going to guess that probably that's not regulated real tight either, is it? No, it's legal in California, but regulations for shops vary by country or city. And is the scar based on the ability of the body to form a scar or a keloid formation? Well, it depends on what sort of outcome you're trying to achieve. In Africa and New Guinea, as part of their tribal rituals, they would deliberately form keloids under the skin by putting ash under the skin. One of the most amazing statistics I learned from some of the information you shared with me is that there's a rate of 46% of body piercings in the age group of 16 to 20. Based on everything that you've already told us today, I would think that's a considerable health risk. Is the FDA or any health officials in in your county concerned over this number? I don't think so. That high number does include ear piercing, which is the most common in that age group, 16 to 20 years old. Now, if you pierce your tongue and it doesn't go right, how might you present to the PCP or the ED doc? Well, there are a lot of complications with tongue piercing. The most common one that's not life-threatening would be a chipped or fractured tooth, and the dentist sees this a lot. One way around that is to use a plastic barbell instead of metallic barbells so they won't chip their teeth.
A barbell is what they put into their tongue, like a stud or an earring? Yes, yes. How else might they present if it gets infected? There are uh, lots of complications from tongue piercing. They can get gingival recession from the barbells rubbing against their gums. So the gum actually starts to recess, yes, and then they have to be referred to a periodontist for surgical correction. There's also aspiration that can occur with tongue piercings. It's a problem with contact sports where they may aspirate their jewelry. There's also reports of blood-borne infections such as hepatitis and HIV associated with tongue piercing. And since the tongue is so vascular, it may need surgical repair for hemorrhage if there's piercing there and they're losing blood, probably lots of it. Piercing has also been associated with cases of trigeminal neuralgia causing lingering pain and severe shooting constant pain. I would guess that doesn't resolve easily, correct? Correct, that does not. And what about infections? That's probably the top reason not to get your tongue pierced is that you can get all sorts of infections different types of organisms for endocarditis. There's a report of a woman who had a brain abscess and had to get a craniotomy as a result of an infection from a tongue pierce. And there's also an airway nightmare called Ludwig's angina. Some other systemic infections would include tetanus, acute post-streptococcal marial nephritis, streptococcal septicemia, staph toxic shock syndrome, and pseudomonal abscesses. So if someone comes into the ER, they've got a stud of some sort in their tongue, or they come into your office and there's some infection, some swelling, will they be admitted for IV antibiotics right away? Is that something you shouldn't fool around with? Well, it depends on how severe it is. Of course, if you're worried about airway compromise, they should absolutely be admitted right away. But if it looks like it's a local infection that they can treat with antibiotics and just removal of the barbell or the tongue pierce, that may be enough. And would you use broad spectrum? What would you cover them with? Clindamycin would be a good choice and penicillin would be a good choice. Is there any less risk with the eyebrow piercings or the, the ears being gauged? The eyebrows would be treated as any facial piercing and they do quite well because the face is so vascular. On the other hand, the ear is not very vascular and you can develop more complications with piercing of the ear. Since the ear is largely an avascular cartilage, it leads to poor healing and more serious infections. So a common infection is pseudomonas. So if you see a patient with an ear infection, you often will start treatment with staph or strept antibiotic coverage. But if they don't improve, you should think of pseudomonas and treat with ciprofloxacin for a possible auricular perichondritis. Now, the CDC had done a study, and they looked at all these kiosks that did ear piercings in different malls all over the country, and they found that the antiseptic solution benzalkonium chloride had no antimicrobial activities against pseudomonas and that in fact it cultured out pseudomonas. That's very reassuring. Yes, this is why I would be very careful and where I would have my daughter pierce her ears. I almost don't want to get into this, but I'll just maybe tell us a little bit. I understand there's African rituals, etc., but do American teens pierce their genitals? Yes, they do. Plenty of them do. They're all types of genital piercing. They're male and female genital piercings, and it's so common, at least in San Francisco, that you can even Wikipedia body piercing, and you will see the times of healing for all types of head piercing, torso piercing, including nipple piercing and genital piercing. And I'm sure some of our listeners will look that up. That's something I wasn't aware of. Looking into your crystal ball of time, do you think this trend is going to reverse? Is this just something else that's kind of phasic, or is it here to stay? 
I think it may be here to stay, but it may be also because I live in San Francisco and also I practice in a county hospital. So I do see a different patient population than the community might see. Where can docs listening to this go for more information? They can Google any question they have. There's also safepiercing.org slash troubleshooting.html for removal of body piercing jewelry. And also for any type of infections, I would recommend my textbook. And let's say the name of that again, please. Emergency Management of Infectious Diseases by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Chin. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Rachel Chin, for joining us to discuss problematic piercings and troublesome tattoos. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete guide and podcasts, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, you can call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you, as always, for listening.